All right, welcome to another Street Sweeper. Hello. I'm your host, Will. I'm Ricardo. Yeah, today we will be continuing to look at the line, but this time we're going to look at the architecture side of things, right? Yeah, this is going to get a bit more in-depth. There's going to be some history. There's going to be some theory. And uh, all those lovely things, I guess. <laughs> There's not going to be any design, hope, like, <laughs> thankfully. No, and we've got, a, we've got a, a treat waiting at the other end of the episode. Right. A new segment called Architecture Bad or Good. Good or bad. So uh, make it through the, the vegetables and right. desserts waiting for you. website for the line uh you see some nice renderings and drawings uh highly abstract uh but one of them one of, one of them uh that really uh really evocative one is a, a a zoomed out satellite image with the line drawn in it it's got four nodes and it explains the line as an ecological project. Of course, of course, it's so ecological. Uh, it's a, it, it, like it, it covers all the fucking bases. It's, it's like, it's, it's, it's like uh, I mean, yeah, it's, um, it's like coastal American liberals plus um, um, Silicon Valley just moves to Saudi Arabia. That's the idea. That's the idea. It, yeah, it's very nice. It's like a... It, it, it's a map of um, of the region, right? Yep. Um, and you can see the line perfectly horizontal, east-west in the map. And then there is like these diag diagonal divisions that identify four ecologies is the term they use. Four ecologies. Yes. Which is basically a Rainer Banham quote on his, his book on L.A. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. Yeah, there you go. I, the coastal elite, Silicon Valley moved. <laughs> so exactly. The four ecologies of LA uh, in the line. Yeah, and it's really you funny. You can picture Rain and Banham on his bicycle going Oh, he would love it. I mean, Rain, this is, the, yeah, you would be totally up for this. I mean, there's going to be self-driving cars, but you can, you can still drive your bicycle. Bicycles yeah. are okay. Oh, yeah, for sure. I've had, this is recording, right? Because I'm going to make a joke. I've had my... Uh, <laughs> my um uh laptop open all this time on the on the main website of neom mm. neom.com and like on the main page and like this whole thing about self-driving cars all it's been showing I've, i haven't touched it it's just like the main screen what they show is just an f1 racing car right driving in a on a road in the middle like by the coast in the desert uh, and that's it. It's just a fucking F1 racing car, which yeah. are not known for energy, uh, like no. for being terribly green. And the whole point about them is that they're being driven by celebrity, yes, quote unquote athletes. <laughs> that's all I see. That's the whole thing is this kind of desert vista by the coast F1 racing car on a road. So in, in, in Neom in the future, the only drivers will be F1 drivers. Right. 
My you question drive is, because is you... Danica Patrick allowed to drive in? Uh... <laughs> now, yes. It's drawings like this one uh, with the uh, four ecologies that for me really evoke the architecture school like student project yeah. character yeah, of exactly. the line. Exactly. Like super simple uh, formal gesture. Um, Very powerful. Looks cool when printed and like on, on the wall. Yeah. I mean my my own thesis was basically this. Big yeah, satellite you, image with a with a form. You were once on the other side. Yeah. <laughs> I was once uh, a, a an avant garde of tech feudal Dystopia. I remember when I was a student specifically, I hated this shit. But I like this. This also happened in Portugal, at less like uh, like toned down version, more like conservative. But usually, like the the projects get that get the student, the, the teachers like uh, attention are the ones that are this kind of strong, straight gesture imposed on the urban territory, neo avant garde style, right? Um, and I was always like, that doesn't make any sense. Have you looked at the terrain? What's the steepness? The, like the steepness of that row that you've just done it varies wildly. It's completely stupid. You, you should do a curve here. <laughs> like, it, yeah. and I was always the uh, kind of contextual. It, funnily, yeah, and I <laughs> fucking hated the also the like my school had the contextual thing. It's critical all about regionalism. critical regionalism is the official ideology of Porto, of the Porto School of Architecture. But at the same time, you have this new avant-garde fetishization of strong, shapey things on the, on the, on the piece of printed in paper over the territory. I had to say, like, and I always I, call me a conservative, but I always thought there is a happy middle. <laughs> yeah. Between, call me a filthy centrist, but there is a happy middle <laughs> ground between strong just like actually strategically uh operating on the city at a strategic level while at the same time having it make sense <laughs> and somehow the, the contemporary architectural dogma is to be to be both extremes at the same time my project i uh like in, in the kind of cool hossian uh world that i studied in in toronto uh formal gestures like this were were frowned upon you actually needed a more you needed diagrams more than form mm -hmm. uh i mean my interest at the time in like formal gestures formal urbanism was kind of like a neo-rationalist thing that wasn't yet hadn't yet become uh consensual or whatever but i i managed to get away with it because it had infrastructure so ironically uh, like my concession to the neoliberal milieu of my school was putting like a train line on it, which I was against. So that like because it, so the milieu was better than you. I, I was against <laughs> the the infrastructure dimension because it it implied the kinds of flows and networks. Which oh, was neoliberal. Were so, trains were trains yeah, were neoliberal. In trains your brain. were neo, neoliberal in my mind. Because the whole ideology of networked flows, goods, movement, all this kind of Deleuzean, Kulhasian, metropolitan nonsense. Like I, I was I was so caught up in a kind of binary formalistic polemic against that neoliberal dimension that I was basically just proposing uh, a kind of whack 
alternative neoliberalism because I was just ignorant of how infrastructure really functions. You were an autonomist. Way. That's a, that's a whole I was thing an that autonomist. Today. You yeah. were an Aurelian. It's fine. I was, yeah. Um, but this, but, it's, it's but really the, the line is great because it, it's it, like so many historical avant-garde projects uh, from the from the late sixties and seventies. It condenses both sides. It's both autonomous. Yeah, this is an and, island and neoliberal. This, yeah, exactly. This is the the Luz and uh, Rossi Rossi together. Yeah. Anyway, if any if any listeners are architecture students, we're architecture students. Uh, you'll obviously be familiar with the line, uh, the form of the line. Uh, since it recalls so many famous new avant-garde projects from the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a contemporary academic project because it looks like just a project of the contemporary of the new of a new avant-garde culture that has been kind of there yeah. since the 1970s. But unlike when I was studying, the two sides have sort of coalesced. So it's possible to be, uh, this is kind of a complicated thought, but there's, I, a, there's a synthesis in the line. I think it can coalesce in the line more than in academia. In academia, okay. you need to have this confrontation in order to, you, you, you're like right. selling competing products, like different units are selling competing products to students. Right, right, exactly. Like this needs to, for the academic market, for the free marketplace of ideas, you need to construct these separations. You need like an, a level of analytical detachment, an external analysis of this, to realize that these two sides of the neoliberal market in contemporary architectural academia are actually the same thing. Right. You while need, pretending a, to be the opposite of each other. Like in Patrick academia, you need, a, you need a two-party system in academia. Yeah, exactly. But in reality, exactly. it's one party. Exactly. It's precisely. <laughs> precisely right. It's, there's the Schumacher Republicans and the uh, like Aravena uh, Democrats. Yeah. And, uh, and that's it, right? Yeah. And, and you understand... You can you you can understand that, but you need to be outside of it. Inside it, you need to function with it. Yeah. The line, but when it becomes reality... You see that the two are the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The line makes it like aggressively explicit. Yeah. So just just to kind of uh, name some of the obvious references here, um, uh, it looks like uh, Super Studios Continuous Monument. It looks like uh, it looks a lot like an American project, uh, the Continuous City for One Million Human Beings. Yeah, this one I don't. Sixty nine. No. I wasn't that familiar no. with, with that one either. But that one also has this kind of literal cross section, like continuous monument. And it's a, and it's, and a, it's a line that actually crosses the entirety. Like it's a nice line on the map, right? That goes yeah. across the America. It's a dead straight east-west line from coast to coast in America. How does it have only one million people, though? If it's that, big? I don't know. I don't know. It's I don't a, like a it's rural it. idyllic paradise. Actually, probably yes, it is. It's it probably now that I'm thinking about it. I don't know anything about the project, but I'm going to guess it has quite a lot of uh, like city slash rural idyllic paradise style um, writing, like uh, mm. Frank Lloyd Wright, Broadacre, Broadacre uh, city, but along a line. So it will it will be incredibly low density and uh, like agricultural. Yeah, I don't. I, I've only seen a couple of drawings of it, and. Uh, but it, it has it has the same kind of literal cross section that the line has, with like 
tubes on the bottom for trains and then like a platform and then buildings on top of the platform. Right. right. Um, Pottery's Think Belt, Cedric Price, maybe another. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a whole host of uh, late 60s, like the turn to the 70s, right? Yeah. Um, where the neo-avant-garde culture that we exist in today is kind of invented. Um, in L- London, like there's basically two main hotspots of this. Hit Italy and London, right? Right. London has a lot of line stuff going on, uh, like the 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 uh, imp- this kind of the import. It's usually it it tends to not be territorial at this scale. It tends to be this kind of aggressive line on an urban territory, kind of creating this sort of like macro divisions of splitting the land, the city in two, but at the same time, it, it functions as a kind of a concentration of program. It is part of the whole like density slash uh, programmatic schema approach of this period of architecture. Um, yeah, and it comes out of uh, basically Team 10 type work, right? And he, I mean, even in Italy, uh, Giancarlo De Carlo was working on, I think, similar projects around this kind of flexible territorial right. scale. And he and Aldo Rossi were, yeah, the two parties arguing that debate uh, in like the, uh, what is it, late, late 50s? The funny thing is that, 60s. again, like even then you see how like the line, uh, the guy who does the line and the guy who does the square, like the square is just the line with four 90 degree angles. <laughs> and the, yeah. the line is just the unfolded square. Like... Uh, and as this, like as we we can see in this, the line, the line is itself a square. Like it's an object. It is. It, it's not right. there to go from one place. To, it's not an infrastructure project as such. Right. Exactly. Although it does have, uh, it's it frequently has that kind of rhetorical imagery. Kind of a it it has a kind of ideal link to that idea of infrastructure, but it doesn't actually constitute that as a project. Um, and that link, by the way. Is a historical link, like the, uh, the 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 this notion of the linear city is not n- invented now, and it's not invented in the 1970s. It's basically it comes from the late. I, I think there's even uh, the first. Don't is, quote don't quote me on this, but I think actually the first um, kind of appearances of this uh, idea are even at, in the end of the 19th century. There certainly um, appeals to that idea. That's, that's, that's kind of, you can imagine the a kind of a urban bourgeois notion of the great new urban boulevard of the 19th century, but like stretched into infinity. Uh, I think mm. there's actually a, a spe- there's a specific description of this uh, as a kind of um, a visionary slide, uh, slash paranoid dream of, uh, mm. I think, the father of the main character in the Russian novel um, <laughs> Petrograd. Um, it's something that I'm, I I remember clearly uh, as being really funny. This kind of the aristocrat, I think he's like a minister of the czar and, uh, the, um, the, he has this kind of, he hates the proletarian part of town, this kind of shanty town area, but with, with, not with a reformist intent of let's make it better, but with the sense of, I wish the working class didn't have to exist, that type of logic. And he's he has this kind of paranoid illusion of the great uh, 
Parisian style boulevard in Petrograd just like stretching into infinity and that's like and mm. that's what the city should be mm. what if it just went all around the world so you 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 have this uh, kind of ideological framing for the linear city emerging out of the great urban interventions in uh, there, European also, capitals. There's also an American example we should mention here uh, from 1910, which is one of these kinds of uh, goofy sort of uh, uh, American uh, inventor schemes called Road Town, right? Which is which is basically like a continuous. Uh, road integrated with building. I mean, it's the same thing, basically, as the continuous city for a million inhabitants. Right. Um, but like, I mean, it's kind of like the skyscraper theorem that Kuhlhaas discovered uh, later. It's one of these sort of bizarre, uh, maybe non-architect uh, projects, which I guess, unlike the yeah, but that, European that- example, would be more connected to American kind of colonial territory yeah, yeah, yeah. expansion. That, 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 it's that. But that actually, funnily enough, makes it better because <laughs> because it, it, it connects to the other trend of the, or the other historical trend of the linear city, which is essentially kind of an engineering infrastructural project. Yeah. It's how to rationalize the city as it becomes more and more transit-centric. Um, and uh, there is a host in the early 20th century of uh, people trying to find ways of rationalizing and optimizing circulation in the city. And the fundamental problem that these kind of urban engine traffic engineers basically are trying to do uh, as automobiles are starting to be inserted, but even before automobiles, like the density of circulation was already a problem and traffic regulations predate the introduction of uh, the internal combustion engine (laughs) uh, into cities. Um, it's to like limit, maximize speed and limit the number of intersections. This is, it, I mean, it's just as straightforward, straightforward as that. Uh, the, no, the, the schemas of uh, urban development that are trying to move away from the typical grid, which is based on having lots of intersections, it, it works real well for a, ser- a series of things, but it doesn't work very well for high speed. Um, and uh, instead have like, there's like three, uh, tree-shaped schemas. Uh, so uh, instead of there being intersections, there's only one line that connects any point to any other point. Um, there is never like a point where there is a four an, inter- an intersection where there's four bits of road coming out of it. There's only three bits of road coming out of it, mm. which means that you don't need like you don't. There's no the car doesn't need to cross to the other side, so you don't need a, a signal. Uh, it's it, it, it basically an entire city system of roads that functions as contemporary highways do. You just have, like, things off going ramps, off so. ramps and on yeah. ramps constantly. Like, imagine a road system that functions like that. Right, right. Where every, every intersection functions as an off or on ramp. Um so three type systems, these were never like fully implemented really. Um, and there's the line, the linear city, which really when you look at it, uh, the linear city and the, uh, the tree system, the tree system is just like a more, a slightly more kind of an evolu- a more complicated form of the linear city. The desire is to have no, in- no intersection, no moment where, where you need to stop. Uh, and I, I mean, a lot of it initially is, is just that it's kind of, attempt to optimize traffic, but it becomes also connected to, as always happened in the early 20th century, these kind of large scale notions of like engineering optimization are connected to a kind of notion of social and political rationalization of the industrial city. 
in the West. Right. Uh, and so it kind of it's it's it it it's end up becoming kind of part of the culture of avant-garde early modernism with all of its political connotations of reforming society, either it be with kind of more Western welfare statey uh, uh, alignments, or, and most importantly, in the Soviet Union. The linear city explodes as an idea in the Soviet Union uh, by the constructive, specifically the constructivist architect group. Uh, I think they start inventing it in uh, 1921, no, 1931. Um, and it is a kind of a hilarious project because the idea that they had is to materialize as territorial slash urban form uh, the idea that they read in Lenin of uh, communism dissolving the difference between the city and the countryside. Right. And so architects being architects, instead of understanding that he was talking about the transformation of everyone, or, 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 he was talking about the social economical transformation in which everyone becomes a worker in a classless society and in which there is no like peasants, there is no industrial workers, there is no different source forms of exploitation of labor in the countryside and in the city. And there is forms of like industrialization and automation and modernization of the countryside as much as it is in the city. No, they just they want to dissolve the city into the countryside. And so they come up with these amazing ideas of continuous cities that go along an infrastructural axis, uh, right. a spine, just like in this line, which has a road and a train, uh, uh, a railway. Um, and then they start like assuming, and you see wonderful little schemas of just like these lines replacing and dissolving existing cities and uh, creating a sort of like mega grid composed of isosceles triangles um, in uh, like just covering the entirety of the urban territory in a uniform fashion. So we, you would have kind of urbanized lines and then inside each triangle there would be extractive industries and agriculture or whatever. And then each line would function, would have its kind of organizational structure where train line, uh, Road um, houses, um, parky parky area with trees, um, manufacturing uh, industrial zone, train track, uh, and then beyond that, uh, like the 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 rural in betweens, and people who would work in the rural in betweens would live in the same line that people who would work in the factory, right? And then the, the houses would even like be built as like pre. Pre-made prefab. prefab houses that like the train would go with a crane and just like plop them, uh, and which is really funny because this comes from architects. I think it's like, they start doing this in 1930-31. In 1928, these architects were inventing high-density collectivist living. Two years later, they're inventing like this idyllic paradise. It really looks a lot like Frank Lloyd Wright's Broadacre hmm. city type, uh, urban idyllic rural paradise. So some Bucky Buckminster Fuller. Oh yeah, Bucky. There too, right? Bucky goes a lot. Go goes 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 that way as well. Uh, but Bucky comes from the the Wrightian tradition. Uh, but yeah, I mean, you see, I mean, the, the funny thing is that obviously this doesn't make any sense, and this is not implemented. There's a, a, a large scale project of economic development. Uh, to rapidly industrialize, uh, like I think Stalin at a certain point like, said, like when 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 the first five-year plan is established in 1928, he explicitly says we have 10 years to do 
what uh, Germany and England have done in 200. Right. Or, or 100. I don't remember the exact quote. But like, we need to do, and we, if we don't do that, we're, we're dead because literally what we're talking about is the, the period of the rise of fascism and the fundamental like a geopolitical anti-communist alliance and uh, there's going to be a new invasion of uh, the Soviet Union that is going to go in and kill them all, which is literally what happened in World War II. So it, like, it, it was absolutely correct. It starts in 1928. The war starts in 1939. Uh, uh, the Soviet Union is also invaded in 41, but... They had 10 years to develop, a, to diversify the economy, <laughs> like Bin Salman wants to do. Uh, rapid industrialization. And you don't do that by destroying all of the cities that you have now. We, like, you need to build on top and you like expand and you build new towns. And what they did was build lots and lots and lots of new towns connected by a very dense system of rail infrastructure uh, and road infrastructures, for sure. But the linear city is kind of complete nonsense. It doesn't make any sense. Um, and the funny thing is, this idea was sort of like perceived as being like, this is the super radical idea. The collapse of this idea is what makes the constructivist uh, dominance of the architectural circles in the Soviet Union in the early 30s end. They attach themselves to this disurbanist project, what they called it. And it didn't make any sense. It was discarded. So they lost their protagonism. And then the constructivist ideal of the reformation of society into an ideal form, it, uh, like the, the, the non-application of the disurbanist project the, was associated with the failure of constructivism, which was associated with the evil reactionary nature of Stalinism, which meant that like you, it, it creates a kind they of- become a, like utopian martyrs, basically. Exactly. For the West. And the utopian martyrs is like the best thing. Inevitably, and they end up associated with Trotsky through not necessarily any fault of their own. <laughs> but obviously kind of Trotskyism becomes like social, Marxist socialism in the West, uh, which is critical of the Soviet Union initially to a certain extent and increasingly over time. Um, and it's like it's prime material in the 19, end of the 1960s, early 1970s for the kind of Western new lefts to kind of appropriate. And suddenly you have... The, the linear city model appearing in all of its different neo-avant-garde shapes connected to the evolution of these new lefts in the West. Uh, in London, explicitly making reference to the constructivist right. architecture. All, all, the, all, all these new avant-garde uh, uh, people at, uh, in London, at the AA mainly, at the time of the, the Kulhases and the Shumis and etc., the so Soviet constructivism was like their main object of research for like 10 years on which they were inspiring their studio practice. Yeah, and it was it was Zengelis and Kohlhaas's, uh unit on the Russian avant-garde. Dip, avant Dip 9, yeah. Dip 9 that Zaha was in. That... Yes. Zaha was there when they were doing Malievich. Right. Yeah, I guess in the, in the Italian examples... Uh, I'm not as aware of a direct kind of historiographical link to the Soviet examples, but definitely the political and kind of uh, economic milieu is similar. Um, it's in a moment in the uh, like late 60s when um, there's a kind of a new radical critique of existing left institutions, the Italian uh, Communist Party and Socialist Party, um, and just like in in London and America, I suppose, 
there's a turn towards a kind of alternative project, an alternative political project that's auton- autonomous from, uh, basically autonomous from the working class, autonomous from the organized working class, unions, political parties. Yeah, I guess after after World War II, um, there's a the Italian left, uh, organized left, the Communist Party especially, they do participate in a kind of a comp- like a welfare state, social democratic comp- compromise in Italy, uh, uh, aiming to develop the national economy. Um, and part of the context, and you can say a bit more about that maybe, is um, the larger kind of division uh, between the Soviet Union and the states as to their spheres of influence. Yeah, like Italy was on the Western side after the... Uh, that was decided, like the division of the sp- splitting of Europe into uh, in the Yalta Conference after World War II. Soviet Union does not get Italy, it, and it, the Communist Party is the strongest political force in Italy after World War II. But Italy is supposed to be on the capitalist side, so get fucked. <laughs> yeah, so they're not allowed to. So basically, the the, the established left parties are, are relatively conservative at the political level. Like they're involved, uh, like. Over this time, there's been a big raise in living standards, big raise in uh, consumer power in the in the working class. So the working class is becoming um, uh, sort of adapted to social democracy. Yeah, and 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 there's no longer really a revolutionary horizon for the old left. Yeah, it is initially actually suppressed explicitly at the geopolitical scale, and then it kind of actually ends up ebbing away as the like. The working class does not do the revolution, but it has enough power to impose reforms, therefore better living conditions, therefore you don't really need or feel like doing a revolution anymore. Right. So you have basically the same thing that happens with like a radical left uh, in France, which is the split basically that we're all more or less familiar with between the new left and the old left um, and the development of a radical position that is critical of, both critical of the Soviet Union critical of communism, and critical of the welfare state. The, the, uh, the, the two are structurally associated. Uh, yeah. Like, again, the the communist parties in the West were prevented from being revolutionary by the Soviet, and, and uh, despite Western Cold War propaganda that continues to persist, like the idea that the Soviet Union was like trying to make a revolution happen everywhere is exactly the opposite of the truth. Both Stalin and Khrushchev were like, do not do a revolution in any yeah. anything anywhere w- west of the Yalta line. If you do that, nuclear war possibly. No, yeah. like the, they, they, it's true that Western uh, communist parties were strictly obeying uh, like external orders from the Comintern, but those orders were to not do the revolution. <laughs> yeah, uh, and if you read if you read uh, about. Uh, even anti-colonial uh, struggle uh, uh, throughout the rest of the world. One of the one of the criticisms you have is that the Soviet Union wasn't supportive enough of of, of revolution and and the yeah. liberation struggle. So the tragedy the tragedy, as perceived from like within that struggle, was the conservatism and non-revolutionary character of the Soviet yes. Union. Not its like aggressive yes. expansionist exactly. Uh, the the Soviet Union was perceived as reformist just because it was forcing reformism 
on Western yeah. communist parties and even uh, on uh, post-colonial like independence movements. But but to to cut through all this and get us back to maybe something architectural, this is the context in which what we think of today as the accelerationist position developed. Hmm. Uh, the autonomist and the accelerationist uh, are, are linked, I think, in this moment. Yeah, this is what is called the radical position. The radical position, which in, in includes, we'd say, both of these. So in Italy... Uh, the kind of academic intellectual left is frustrated with the conser conservatism of the big unions and the conservatism of the Communist Party. They, like people like Manfredo Tafuri, they join the Communist Party and then quit it and have this kind of like dance they're doing where they're trying to make it more radical and trying to maintain a, a kind of critical external position. All this in, in architecture is expressed in architecture as a frustration with a kind of blockage and historical dead end as they experienced it. Right. They, they don't see revolution in the cards uh, and they're not content with this kind of reformist uh, vague compromise. Uh, so they try to project basically beyond the historical process, beyond the historical struggle. They try to project the end game. Like what is the end game of this process? So uh, um, Arkazum's No Stop City is a dystopia in a way. It's both a utopia and a dystopia. It's a vision of the capitalist city as it would be eventually created by the process of modernization and commodification. So their radical project is the most extreme capitalist city, but it's radical because it cuts through history and it gives the intellectual a means to jump beyond the historical process, to accelerate past it to a point where the contradictions become irresistible and it forces some sort of uh, revolutionary moment. But it's also kind of utopian in the sense that the revolutionary moment it's not just about leaping through history to reach the the moment when or where contradictions exist again and revolution happens the leaping of that history becomes the revolutionary gesture yeah. so like the the notion is that now the revolution is the, is no longer the working class overthrowing capitalism the revolution is the intellectual radically separating themselves from the historical content of their time and yeah. imagining this kind of dystopian slash utopian future where effectively like it's the most radical dysto capitalist dystopia but it's also kind of communist utopia yeah. at the same yeah. time you look at it and it's the generic infinite grid where uh, which is perceived as being uh, where cap how capitalism develops, which is sort of correct, more or less. But it's also perceived as this kind of like a equalitarian. Uh, oh yeah, and this is this is an equalitarian catastrophe. Of and this kind. is this is this is what makes it accelerationist. It, at the end of the day, it's capitalism that does the revolution. It's technical yep. development, which is perceived critically and you and in a utopian way at the same time. Um, they. They're, they're the idea simultaneously critiqued and fetishized. And fetishized. And the intellectual matches that revolutionary process by being able to describe capitalism in its most futuristic and te technical vanguard 
characteristics. Right. So right. this is when people just start inventing new concepts for what capitalism is. This is when it becomes important to be able to say we're no longer in Fordism, we're now in post-Fordism. Right. I mean, there's a degree of truth to this in the West because right in this transitional moment, not only uh, is there a kind of a, a dead end of, of left transformative politics as perceived by uh, the intellectuals, there's also a real historical crisis in the economies of Western social democracy. So you actually have a collapse of the welfare state coinciding with this moment of its critique by a kind of a new left. And in their work, in the work of, I mean, most obviously, Archigram, uh, right. you see uh, a projection of the neoliberal city being developed as a critique of the social democratic city. Right. So all but these as a radical project. As a radical the project. The radical project becomes the architectural image, an architectural image of financial capitalism, of contemporary neoliberalism, which is why the line makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah. So in, in the in the new avant-garde projects of this of the late 60s and 70s, you see this game where a new uh, intellectual left, an academic left, cultural left, um, is basically inventing the forms of neoliberalism, the kind of schemas of neoliberalism, as a as a radical critique of the welfare state of reformism of reformism none of that actually happens like there is no no the no images stop city. Do, the images do not become real in the same way that the line does not need to become real to be profitable uh, it, they construct effect they effectively function as a kind of a a propaganda vanguard for the actual economic reforms that neoliberalism is starting to implement from the 70s onwards, first slowly and then in the 80s aggressively, right? Yeah. And so it's like the, the this idea of the completely generic uh, infinite city becomes uh, indistinguishable from the highly architecturalized uh, single object because it, it is about... Uh, constructing a strong architectural, like architecture becomes about constructing a strong imagery yeah. of uh, uh, like a utopian slash dystopian capitalist future. Uh, therefore, the the communist utopian imageries of the seventies become the architect uh, architecture Bilbao yeah. effects of the eighties, and the line is now showing the contemporary continuity and reality of this. And unlike the projects of the 70s of the linear CDs, of the Italians and of uh, OMA and et cetera, uh, that had no chance of being implemented, this one has a little bit of chance of being implemented, but the social political reality behind it has no, like, is the, the diametrical opposite yeah. thing from... Uh, uh, the, the, the legitimizing discourses of the new avant-garde projects, and it is in a, it, it's just transnational uh, mega corporate uh, neo feudalism. Yeah, uh, like the the society that can produce what has been advertised for decades as this kind of sort of radical utopian form is the most dystopian fucking reality that you can imagine. Yeah, at a global scale. Yeah, I think pe people only like, uh, only so, uh, only Saudi neo feudal uh, oil based 
planet-destroying, uh, borderline slave labor-fueled um, social economic reality can really give body to the utopian architectural dreams of contemporary radical culture. Yeah, you need basically a uh, crown prince to synthesize the dreams of the avant-garde and make them real. And save architecture. And save architecture. <laughs> but the line, again, the line sort of, sort of demonstrates that outside of these intellectual games and kind of like competing uh, polemics outside the two-party system of the academy, uh, in reality, you, you only get this kind of architectural synthesis through uh, something like, uh, as you said, a neo-feudal uh, tech fascist uh, regime. Yeah. So the line, uh, I hope we've, we've, uh, we've covered a lot of different... I think, of- I, think we can, I think our episode on the line is better than all of the episodes on the line that other podcasts have done. <laughs> we can explain better why it's bad. You need, you need, and what it is really? Yeah, having like a, a foot in architecture discourse um, helps to explain exactly how bad it is. Yeah. All right. So now we are doing a thing that we invented. That is a segment, like how all the other podcasts have a segment. Mm-hmm. We have a segment too. Yeah. So our uh, idea is we want we each pick one architectural trash object from some trash journal, probably called the zine. Um, And um, we bring it and show it to the other one. And it's going to be called architecture, good or bad. We will be deciding if each of these objects is obviously trash, but... Yeah, this is our architecture. Is it good trash or section. bad trash? We did critique for the rest of the episode. Now it's just criticism. Exactly. That's that's precisely very well academically put. Uh, show me your object. Well, why don't you start? Or do we want me to start? Uh, I can start. So this is a tower project, a super tall skyscraper uh, by the architect architecture firm Dort Mandrup. Dork Mandrup. Dort. Dork. It's, it's pretty much like a, a Star Wars name. This is true. This is true. Okay, why don't go go? You yeah, you, so you tell me. I'm this just reading is the, the title already. The bestseller tower designed by Danish firm Dort Mandrup Architecture for the small town of Brand. None of this pronunciation is any good, I'm sure. In Denmark. <laughs> Um, it's supposed to be the, if built at 320 meters high, it would be the tallest, uh, tower in Western Europe. Impressive. And why I picked this one, there's something, it's, it's, it's sort of a neo-rationalist, uh, design. It's a grid basically extruded into the sky. It, it, it just looks like a, I mean, it's, it's just a. Mesian prison, but the the there's a kind of a facade grid that is very apparent over the glass. Yeah, it's a square grid. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like a glass um, curtain wall. But what makes this interesting special? Because uh, I, I mean, there's a ton of these kinds of neo rationalist towers. I think mm-hmm. um, this one's very narrow. It's very narrow, and it's cl- got a cluster of sort of mossy. Uh, 
uh, other other buildings at its prison. base. Yeah, but outside of that sort of like little complex at its base, it's in the middle of the countryside. Yes. So it's in a small town, supposedly. You don't um, see the small town in the render. You don't see the small town in the it render. It looks like it's replacing a small town. <laughs> yeah. Like the entire small town is transformed into this like agglomeration of Misian prisons with moss on the... On the, on the uh, yeah, it looks sort of like a weird post-apocalyptic Mies complex. Mm, true. Um, there's sheep. There's sheep. The... The name Bestseller Tower. Bestseller is apparently a, a clothing brand. Really? Yeah. And their headquarters are in this small town. So you, you already know there's some financial shenanigans yes. going on here. Uh, approval for this super tall uh, tower, which is taller than the Shard, uh, was passed. Uh, this is what the article is about. There is now uh, a municipal approval from this very small town. To build a shard level. Yeah, to build a mega mega tower corporate building. <laughs> In the middle of the countryside. So you definitely know we're dealing with uh, some sort of uh, company town tax shelter shenanigans. Right. Um, but it's definitely a unique architectural experience. Um, if you put the the uh, eye of uh, Sauron on the top, you'd have like some sort of twist on the uh, evil tower motif, since it's in like a like an otherwise non-urban context. Yeah, it's like what he's watching the sheep. It's basically if uh, Bilbo built his own tower of Sauron in the Shire. In the Shire, <laughs> and this is the evil. Headquarters of the evil uh, <laughs> Hobbit Empire. What if, yes, what if, what if the Hobbits were the bad guys all along? Which, of course, they historically are because they represent England. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so the question is, uh, I put it to you, architecture, bad or good? I don't know. I mean, it's terrible, but... Yeah, on, on stylistic grounds, the mishmash of sort of casual... Uh, non-axial clumps of the Mesian blocks at the bottom and then the like strict square-based grid of the t tower yes. extruding is ugly. Yes. I mean, even if the grid that extrudes up was just on a rectangular basis, it would look better. Yes. So it's bad uh, aesthetically, I'd say, at that level as a composition. But I want to say it's good just for the uh, sort of <laughs> sublimely awful... Uh, sort of Euro corporate picturesque that it creates. Yeah, I think there is something about this exactly Euro corporate, and the Euro is because they're sheep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like there's something <laughs> specific about the the render having not only people. There's people in the past going in the middle of the corporate buildings that could be just any project in this kind of kind of financial center type thing, but then there's just like pasture around it and sheep. Yeah, okay, I like it. Okay. That's fine, that's fine by me. Your turn. Okay, my turn. You can open my thing. Okay, let's see, what is this? There we go. Architects Ar must defend public space. Says Elizabeth Diller, as she celebrates Moscow Park's alfresco sex appeal. What does that mean, I bet? <laughs> so it turns out 
Dealers Cafidio and Renfro have uh, made up an urban park in Moscow. Fine. Okay. It's normal urban park. It has some kind of shapey things going on. You can see the picture there. It's perf- it, it looks like an ordinary contemporary park area. Yeah, it's got that weird curvy formal blob aesthetic yeah it's, it's like it looks like every contemporary urban park thing uh, with it has some kind of elements of uh, the uh, whole kind of olympic park aesthetic i guess yeah uh obviously by the riverside etc um typical neoliberal contemporary modern park um so what happens um Architect Elizabeth Diller reveals the stealthy way in which the office creates public spaces and discloses how it was accused of corrupting Russian youth after an outbreak of open-air sex in Moscow's park. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a TED Talk, this, is, this article is about a TED Talk. Wow. So, I, my object is the park and the, te- and the TED Talk. You, like, you can't dissociate both. Right. One from the other. And so she's saying, we're not listening to the tech talk, of course. We have better things to do with our lives. But she's talking about, basically, the, the story is the following. Don't, you don't need to read the whole article. Um, it's an urban park. People go cruising and fuck at night in the middle of like the secluded areas in an urban park. These are things that happen in urban parks. Yeah. There's cameras that recorded it. Okay. Public outcry. Mm. And public outcry uh, is directed at the architects because it's their fault that they created some like shady corners that okay. attract people for cruising. Um, and uh, Elizabeth Taylor re- replies saying she's extremely proud of what she's done because, and this is basically the message. She, the American, brought democracy to Russia by allowing them to have sex in the park outside, (laughs) by creating spaces that stimulate open sex, that were caught on camera. Now, this is great for two reasons. Number one, this happens in every park. I can tell you, like, in the three parks that surround my house in London, uh, I can tell you exactly what are the corners where people go cruising at night. Mm. Um, bec- and I don't need to go there and check it out myself. I can just, I'm walking around during the day and I can say this, 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 because you look and you see these are the secluded little corners that happen in every urban park. Right. But in here, they appear as like the idea of the design, which probably wasn't there in the beginning. It just happened and she's claiming originality. But it's like, it's the paradigmatic, like, a liberal uh, American colonial mind. It's a repressive regime. She even uses the word. How do you do an architecture for a repressive regime? You do some little corners so people can have open air sex in the park. (laughs) She's subverting Putin. Uh, of course, then there's, there's CCTV cameras everywhere. There's no CCTV cameras in my London parks. Um, I don't know if the only place in London where there aren't. I'm far enough in the in the proletarian outskirts that CCTVs would become it would become too much. There's uh, not enough. There's not enough property to try to protect. Yes, <laughs> but uh, but then the argument is, I'm I'm bringing democracy to Russia because some people did sex in my park, uh, and it was on purpose by uh, by me, and I'm fighting totalitarianism by public ex- indecency and exposure. <laughs> 
And then the park is just totally normal. Yeah, I mean, from looking at the images, this park looks like it has far fewer secluded areas than like a normal park. Right? I mean, she says, uh, where is it? Um, There's a lot of churches in this park, too. Well, yeah, well, they are around it. <laughs> she says something about um, the undulating topography and hidden corners made it immensely popular with populating couples. And so then the she says, we came to believe that regimes come and go, some more slowly than others, but public spaces endure. They can work quietly, even subversively, to empower the public. And this starts with, like, she starts the whole thing saying, architects must defend public space. And what, and like, this public space was built by the totalitarian regime for people to enjoy. Yeah. Because the to evil totalitarian Russian regime is building public parks while in London they are degrading and then they're funded. Um, but then some sex happened <laughs> and that equals democracy. It's like it's so paradigmatic yep. of the Western liberal mind with a kind of colonial edge to it that I find wonderful. And then, yeah, the park is just a park. Yeah, it looks like a park designed... And it looks pretty bad. Exclusively for tourist use. Yeah. Except, I guess, that... Uh, I mean, if if one could take credit for anything in this park, it's that local uh, Moscow youths are taking the park back from the tourists. And the, and the park was designed for the tourists by the architects. So it's actually... Can't take credit for this at all. So I'm going to say bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to say bad. This is terrible. This yeah. is architecture at its worst. Yeah. Bad. <laughs> the park is bad. Uh, the take is bad. Everything here is bad. <laughs>